Welcome to Pioneers, a five-part podcast series featuring one-on-one conversations with some of Rhode Island's most notable civic leaders. I'm your host, Mary Kim Arnold. Pioneers is produced by the Rhode Island Foundation, the state's largest and most comprehensive funder of nonprofit organizations. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in front of a live audience. I talked with Alan Hassenfeld, former chairman and CEO of Hasbro, Inc., a multi-billion dollar international toy company. Alan is also a global philanthropist with a particular commitment to children's health. We had our conversation at the Rhode Island Convention Center in downtown Providence. Alan, welcome to Pioneers. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you, Mary Kim. Our audience and listeners likely know of your role with Hasbro, but maybe don't know much about its founding. I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about how Hasbro got started. Uh, That's easy and and a wonderful question to start with. My grandfather and his brothers came from Europe, from Poland, in about 1919. They became rag merchants. When I say rag merchants, I don't mean in the clothing business. They literally took the seconds and the thirds from the mills that were producing textiles, and they first made hat liners, and then they made pencil boxes because we were also in the pencil business. And then all of a sudden, pencil boxes became doctor kits, and doctor kits gave birth to potato head. (laughs) Did you learn much from them about their immigrant experience then? Not really, because my grandfather died when I was about 10. But I learned a lot, you know, from my dad, my mom, my dad's brother, because we would sit as a family. I wish we did it more today over dinner every night. And we talk about what was going on at school and work, but more importantly, what was going on nationally in the sense of politics. As you know, the theme of the series is pioneers. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about people who you've seen as pioneers who've maybe paved the way for you. Everyone should know that I'm third generation. And if you know the curse of the third generation, the first generation, my grandfather and his brothers, they were the pioneers. My father and his brother, they took the business to another level. And then comes the third generation. We waste everything. Um, And uh, somehow I was able to remove myself from Hasbro in time before everything went south. And it's one of the things I try and teach at Hasbro because many of the people that come to Hasbro today, we're a $5 billion company. When I came into the business, we were about a $30 million company. And I don't think the people that come in today really comprehend all of those people that came before and what they sacrificed to make us what we are today. I'm so glad that you started talking a little bit about your family because I think one of the things that um, maybe we don't know much about your public persona is a little bit about your personal story. And I wonder if you would share a bit about maybe a cherished childhood memory. Being deprived of toys. (laughs) They never gave me toys. Which was a straight line, too. No, I actually, um, uh, when I went on to college, I majored in English and creative writing. I think part of the reason I got into the University of Pennsylvania was squash. I can remember 
after my first year at Penn, my mother coming down to school and basically saying, gee, son, this is really great. You're taking all C's and you're ranked so high in the country in squash, but we've never had a jock in the family and we don't want one. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you, what sort of things inspire you most about the work that you're doing now? That's easy. I think that any time any of us see a child, see an adult that's not smiling, that's going through problems, if we're able to turn that grimace into a smile, that makes your heart just absolutely feel so good. So I I think what makes me happy is, is trying to be creative in philanthropy and trying to make sure that we're making a difference. Because too often I think we give but we don't think necessarily what the end goal is going to be. And so for me, the end goal basically is how do we bring sunshine where there's darkness? You mentioned philanthropy, and of course, so much of your work has been in this field. I wonder if you have seen changes in the role that philanthropy can play in the time that you've been engaged in it. I think philanthropy has changed greatly. In the sense that when we talk sometimes about the new philanthropy, many of the people that are trying to make a difference, we want to see certain metrics in the sense of not just giving for the sake of giving, but giving with an end goal. We had talked a little bit earlier, and you mentioned the state of Rhode Island, and I wonder if you wanted to share a few thoughts that you had shared with me about that. Oh, boy. Um, Look, first of all, I love Rhode Island. It's where I was born and bred. I still don't understand a number of things that go on in our state. Here you have a population of about a million people, and yet we have 39 cities and towns. If Noah ever built his ark in Rhode Island, we would need 39 times 2. If you just take the schools... We have 36 school districts, 36 superintendents, 36 this, 36 that. Can we not do things together and begin to save money? Not only save money, but put money into making education better than it is today because there are so many things that we could do simply if people would give up a little bit of territory and work together and collaborate. I happen to be very passionate about the line item veto. And what most people don't realize is when you give the governor the right for the line item veto, well, the governor can line out a bunch of things, but it then goes back to the legislature to basically decide if they're going to override the veto. When I think that we held back the line item veto this time, I look at the election this year, 400,000 people voted for governor. I think 6,600 voted in the area where the speaker is. He ended up with 3,500 votes, the governor with 198,000 votes. You know, if I was talking directly to Nick Mattiello, I'd basically say, Mr. Speaker, give it a chance. We the people, basically, in 2016, 66% in the poll that Common Cause did wanted a line-item veto. The other thing I'm very passionate about and very disappointed that we haven't addressed is gun control. There's one law that needs to be changed. We in Rhode Island are allowed to carry a concealed weapon uh, if we have a permit. You can't take it into the state house, but you can take it into a church. You can take it into a synagogue. 
and you can take it into a school. All I can say is, I hope it never happens. We don't have a tragedy in Rhode Island. But if we do, I blame it on the legislature. I know you're very passionate about leadership, and you've, in fact, made significant investments in leadership development. Um, I wonder if you would speak to some of the qualities that you look for in a leader. My wife has two quotes that she basically gives me. One, from listening comes wisdom, from speaking repentance. It's an Italian proverb. Uh, So I'm already in trouble. And she always says to me, God gave you two ears not to talk with. But when you talk about leadership, I, I think the most important quality that a leader must do is, number one, be a good listener. But at the same point in time, a good leader basically surrounds she or he with wonderful, talented people that fill the void of that leader and make that leader better. I've always found that when you surround yourself with great people, boy, oh boy, do they make you look good. In uh, a career as accomplished as yours, I think people are always maybe a little curious about how you've handled adversity or maybe course correction. I wonder if you could speak to any um, times when you've had to change course a little bit. All the time, (laughs) Uh, um, especially with my wife. I mean, you know, that's... um, Look, I, I tell a story that goes back a long time ago when I first came into the business. I had said to my father and my brother... I'll come into the business, but you have to understand, you brought me up with certain ethics and morality. If ever I have to sacrifice any of those, I'm out of here. And the other thing that was very important to me was basically, this was fairly nervy, I'll work with you, I won't work for you. But anyway, I got away with it. But one of the first things that I learned, I was in the Far East, and I had lived in the Far East for about, for a number of years, um, And I had learned how to do almost every menial job, whether it was injection molding, rotational molding, loading ships, loading airplane. I desperately wanted my brother and my dad to sort of hit me on the rear end and say, hey, great job, Alan. But they never did that. And I learned from that moment on that once you respect yourself, doesn't really matter what other people think because they will respect you as long as you yourself respect yourself. When we spoke earlier, you perhaps made the mistake of mentioning that you were a creative writing major. And as you know, I'm a writer and I teach creative writing. So I'm going to maybe take you back in time a little bit, if you'll indulge me. Um, so you mentioned that your favorite, one of your favorite authors was Charles Dickens. So we're back at Penn. In your dorm room, you're reading Dickens, writing your English lit papers. What do you tell your younger self about the life ahead? I'd basically say, be like David Copperfield. Be a picaresque character willing to go on the road and never, never fear. If the door is open, try and walk through it and see what's on the other side. And I I think, you know, very much like Copperfield, as you're walking down uh, a path, don't be afraid of taking the right fork or the left fork, but at least don't remain stationary. Too many people, I think, fear change. Uh, For me, change is good. If you're going to be successful, 
you have to try and change within you know the times we're in. We actually have a few questions from the audience that are really wonderful, and I wonder if I can turn to those now. Maybe. <laughs> I guess we'll see how they go. There's a wonderful Henry Kissinger quote, uh, and I don't quote Kissinger that often, but Henry used to say, does anyone have any questions for my answers? <laughs> so let's, so we'll see, how, see, how let's see how we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so this is from Harry. Uh, Mr. Hassenfeld, what makes you most proud of Rhode Island? I think what makes me most proud of Rhode Island are the people that live here. As much as we fight over every issue we can think of, we're actually a very cohesive group of people as far as loving the state uh, and trying to make a difference. Look, I love six months of the year better than I love the other six months of the year, but it's just a very, very special place. And I think because we are small, we are community. In the state of Rhode Island, if we all could just learn to give a little, we're so small, we can, repl- we can model a program here and we can replicate it across America. So I love, you know, in one sense, our smallness and being able to maybe take it across the country. So Marie would like to know if you would talk about the work you're doing through the School of Public Health to improve children's health. When we set up the program at Brown at the School of Public Health, which is the Center for Pediatric Innovation, we finally agreed that we would focus on autism, obesity, and asthma. And I think that we're doing some wonderful work. Little did we know, many of us in this room, when we were growing up, what autism was. You know, I think when I first heard about autism, it was maybe one in 10,000. Today, it's almost one in 40 are afflicted. You know, it's a huge spectrum, and we've got to do something about it. And, you know, it's a real collaboration because we have, you know, Hasbro Children's, we have Women's and Infants, we have people from all over America working with the Institute. I'd love to be able to tell you one thing that we're working on that deals with opioid babies, but I'm not sure we're there yet. But we could be on the cusp of trying to comprehend whether a baby who comes from an opioid mother who's addicted, whether the baby must go on a protocol uh, to detox or whether that baby is okay. But they're, I think, hopefully close to breaking it open. Uh, So this question is from Kate. What advice do you have for young leaders to break out of their social media world and gain real-world perspective? When I think about social media, I have some real problems today. I'm not on LinkedIn anymore or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. I want my privacy. I just was at Brandeis. I chair the business school there. And when I talk to the people who had student life, their biggest concern today is mental health issues. Is it because of social media, because they're turned on all the time and they feel they have to basically respond instantaneously? I say I'm scared because I don't know if we're losing humanity. Many times people don't look into other people's eyes. Many people, you don't see body language the way we want to body language. I'll never forget my wife and I having dinner a year ago, and there were four girls, college students, at the next table. They didn't say anything to one another. All they did 
the whole hour was text. Now, whether they were texting one another <laughs> rather than talking, that's probably what they were doing, but I'm not sure. <laughs> right. Um, well, this is maybe a related question. Julie is asking, um, in what ways would you like to see educators improve education to create a more prepared workforce? What skills do you see as being most needed? I, about a year and a half, two years ago, talked to Gary Sass, who runs a leadership institute at Bryan. And I said, Gary, I want to try and understand um, something that's a phenomenon. We at Hasbro and a lot of people are saying that there are job openings, but there are no applicants. You know, the skill set's wrong. And I thought maybe it was technology, this and that. So I said, look, I don't want to talk with CEOs. I want you to have me meet with some of the human resource people around the state, you know, whether it's CVS, whether it was Hasbro, whoever. And what I learned from them was basically, number one, the skill sets they're missing is many of the younger people don't know how to communicate. And many companies today that are forward-thinking are working in team groups. And along with that, if you can't communicate, you can't work in a team, then you won't be a leader. I think that, you know, on the whole side of education, I'm not a lover of some of the things that we do here in the state. We need to sit down with our union leaders, with our teachers, with our superintendents, get everyone together. You know, I keep hearing year after year after year, oh, we're not doing well here, we're not doing well here, but we're not changing the game. I'm cognizant of your comment before about uh, having the right answers for the right questions, and I wonder as we wind up, is there any answer that you have for a question that I haven't yet asked? Well, you haven't asked me my favorite quotations. And I was, I was kidding Mary Kim because I looked up this quotation. Because I'm not sure if I actually was the one that should be quoted or if it was someone else. But my favorite quote is, problems are like ice cream cones. If you don't lick them quickly, they become very messy. And I look around the world today and I look at the way Many companies or many people, we give that 10% of the answer. And the next day we find out we have to give out another 10. What you really want to do, and I can say this to any CEO, hey, use your head. Tell people what happened, what you did wrong, what you're going to do to fix it, and then shut up. <laughs> okay, and, and, and my other favorite quote is one from Gandhi. One of the things that I am somewhat worried about nationally is uh, greed. But Gandhi once said, there's enough in this world for human need, not enough for human greed. And I think we're living in a time that there's a lot of greed out there. So, Ellen, we're just about to let you go. But before we do, we have a few questions that we're calling a lightning round. Um, these are meant to be just sort of quick off the top of your head, and we're going to ask them of all of our guests. Are you ready? Are we asking the guests first? <laughs> so I, can... I take that as yes. Okay. Um, are you a dog person or a cat person? Dog. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Everybody's smiling and, and working in harmony together. What word or phrase do you most dislike? It can't be done. What is one quality you value most in your friends? Honesty and integrity. If your career hadn't worked out in the way that it did, what would you be doing instead? 
Well, I should have been in Wimbledon. I mean, <laughs> I wanted to be, I wanted to play Wimbledon. Um, no, the, the other thing that I thought about doing, believe it or not, was doing what you're doing, being a professor. Well, trying to be a professor. <laughs> Ellen, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Kim. You've been listening to Pioneers, produced by the Rhode Island Foundation and brought to you by the Civic Leadership Fund, an annual fund that broadens the scope and increases the responsiveness of the foundation's traditional philanthropy. Our show is edited by Megan Hall, sound design and theme music by Tom Van Buskirk. To support efforts like this one, please visit rifoundation.org.